Hello, this is Frances Harry with Carmelite Conversations. It is great joy today that I offer you a talk done by Deacon Rusty Baldwin, who is an OCDS member of the community in Dayton, Ohio. And he did a talk on maintaining our Discast Carmelite Secular Identity. And so I'd like to share that with you today. I think that you will find um, it is very rich um, and will give you much to think about as you try to live out your call to the Discast Carmelite Secular Order and also to be able to explain it to others. So without further ado, I present to you Deacon Rusty Baldwin. The title of this presentation is Maintaining Our Identity. I thought that this was both a very important as well as timely topic given our present circumstances and the importance of our Carmelite vocation to the church and to the world. Our world is in disarray. Much that we presume stable and solid has become unstable and uncertain. Though not unprecedented in history, I can't imagine that any of us would have in our wildest dreams imagined a pandemic in our lifetime. Masses being suspended as a result. Civil unrest at a level we haven't seen since the 1960s. Mobs destroying and defacing symbols of our nation's history, some in the capital itself. To say nothing of the moral decline that seems to have no lower bound. And the list could go on and on. And while I'm in no way comparing our present circumstances, either in kind or in degree, to what happened in France during the terror of the French, Re French Revolution, we can nevertheless be inspired and learn a lesson by the courage of the 16 discalced Carmelite martyrs of Compagnie and the witness they gave to France and the whole world. Even if you've heard the story before, it's well worth hearing again. The revolutionaries during the French Revolution regarded the Catholic Church with scorn because they saw her as embodying everything they were trying to destroy. Contemplative orders, like the Carmelites, were targeted specifically because they were not active. Therefore, in the eyes of the revolutionaries, the Carmelites did nothing useful for France. In 1792, the community of Carmelite nuns at Compagnie consisted of eleven nuns, three lay sisters, and two externs. They were driven from their monastery, split up into different homes, forced to abandon the habits they wore, and were monitored by agents of the revolution. Despite this, the sisters refused to abandon their vocation and continued to meet together and pray as a community. They offered their lives as a sacrifice to restore peace to France and to the Church. After two years, they were arrested and jailed by the revolutionaries. After a brief sham trial, the sixteen Carmelites were sentenced to execution. The next day, they were paraded through the streets of Paris on their way to the guillotine. They were wearing their habits because their secular clothes were being washed. As they approached the scaffold, they chanted the Vene Sancte Spiritus and other hymns. As each one ascended the stairs to be executed, she renewed her vows before the prioress, Mother Teresa of St. Augustine, 
and then calmly placed her head in the guillotine. With each fall of the blade, the singing diminished, one voice at a time. Mother Teresa of St. Augustine was the last to be executed. After she was killed, there was complete silence. This was quite unusual. Typically, an execution was preceded by a drum roll, and following the beheading, the crowd erupted into cheers, believing that they were cheering for values such as freedom, equality, and reason. This time, the mood was somber. There were no drums nor cheering. The crowd dispersed in silence. The nuns offered their lives in hopes that God would bring peace to their land. And so he did. Ten days after their execution, the terror ended. As I said before, while there is much that is different both in degree and in kind with the kind of turmoil we're dealing with today, we nevertheless share the challenge with the Carmelites across the centuries of holding fast to our Carmelite identity no matter what is going on around us, no matter what the cost. And so we come to the question at hand, which is, what is our identity? For that matter, what is identity? Let's look at the second question first. What is identity? The philosophical definition of identity, which equates identity with essence, will serve us best in this context, I think. Now, essence are those properties or characteristics that makes a thing what it is. Those properties it has by necessity, and without which it loses its identity. So we're asking, what is it that makes a secular Carmelite a secular Carmelite and nothing else? I submit that the essence of who we are is contained in two words we use to describe ourselves. Two words that are very familiar to you. This familiarity itself is a blessing because very often the essence of something is hard to discover. If you have ever read the Platonic Dialogues, you know what I mean. But our Holy Mother Teresa and Holy Father John have, I maintain, left us no doubt as to the essence of what a secular Carmelite is. We are active contemplatives. Active contemplatives. Take away active and we're no longer seculars, that is, living in the world. Take away contemplative, and we're no longer Carmelites. You see, the French revolutionaries thought that by removing the Carmelite nuns from their monastery, they were destroying the essence of what the community was. But they weren't. For the Carmelite, or excuse me, for the community was not their monastery. So too, when they forced them to wear secular clothes rather than their habits, but their habits were not their essence either. Finally, out of desperation, they took from them their very lives. But even that did not deprive the martyrs of their identity. Indeed, their martyrdom fulfilled and completed their identity. And they joyfully embraced the martyrdom they received from the hands of God. So let's take a closer look at contemplation that, to borrow a metaphor from St. Pope John Paul II, 
is one of the two lungs that constitute our identity as secular Carmelites. According to St. John of the Cross, contemplation is communication of, is the communication of God untied to the senses. Contemplation is the communication of God untied to the senses. St. Teresa puts it much less academically. Contemplation is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. In any case, entering into contemplation is received by the Spirit in an attitude of faith and loving attention. And the soul receives contemplation passively, just as one receives sunlight by doing no more than opening the shutters. Thus, that contemplation is part of our essence or identity rather than something we do is affirmed. For contemplation is essentially receptive, a kind of humble and loving submission to God. This is similar to the essences we see in creatures. The essence of a bird is flying, a gift received, if you will. A bird doesn't have to do anything to receive its essence. That is, it doesn't earn birdness. It's a pure gift. So too with us as contemplatives. Contemplation is a gift received. It is who we are. We simply have to open the shutters and then in faith silently wait for the gift. Yet, paradoxically, opening the shutters or disposing ourselves to receiving the gift is often confused with earning the gift of contemplation. This opening of the shutters is a necessary but not sufficient condition for receiving the gift of contemplation. And St. Teresa insists contemplation comes directly from God and one must not and cannot strive for it. True, we do dispose ourselves to enter into contemplation, but it remains a gift given by God when he chooses. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 1270 emphasizes that, quote, one does not undertake contemplative prayer only when one has the time. One makes time for the Lord with a firm determination not to give up, no matter what trials and dryness one may encounter. One cannot always meditate, but one can always enter into inner prayer, independently of conditions of health, work, or emotional state. The heart is the place of this quest and encounter in poverty and in faith." Unquote. And as Carmelites, our model for contemplation is the Blessed Virgin Mary, for she possessed the contemplative spirit par excellence. Not only was she uniquely and singularly attuned to the Holy Spirit, but when confronted with the most sublime mysteries of God, the sacrifice of her son on Calvary being the most poignant, she pondered, kept, and indeed, Scripture says, treasured these things in her heart. This brings us to the other element of our identity, our second of two lungs, if you will, that constitutes our identity as secular Carmelites. We are active contemplatives. 
According to our constitutions, we live out our vocation actively by, quote, participating in the apostolic goal of the church's mission, unquote. But after this is added a very important clarification. We participate in the apostolic goal of the church's mission within the framework of our charism, which of course is prayer. We bring the wealth of our spirituality through missions, prayer groups, and the ministry of spirituality, to name but a few examples given by our Constitution. But I would also add, we also act by simply being lay contemplatives in the midst of the church. I think this captures the spirit of our mission, which is to know God that he may be known. Notice how that is worded. Our mission is not to know God and then go forth and make him known, which would imply we must do something. Rather, our mission is to know God that he may be known. To me, this implies it's the Holy Spirit who acts. Being, not doing. We are who we are and let the Holy Spirit move where and as he wills. This is much like contemplation. We open the shutters and the light comes in. Now we come to how we maintain our identity. This is especially important in our turbulent times where there are so many distractions and opportunities both within our Carmelite community and in the world to focus not on our identity, not on our charism or mission, but rather on events controversies, and other issues that inevitably arise in human affairs. But I can state categorically that to the extent we allow ourselves to be distracted from our vocation as active contemplatives, beyond what we're obliged to do by our office or position within the community or our responsibilities outside the community, to that extent we have departed from the way of perfection if I may co-opt the title of our Holy Mother's book for this purpose. For instance, who benefits when we engage in a debate over the wisdom of this policy or that, this practice or that, with regard to prudential decisions made by those in authority over us? This can only cause confusion and dissension. The examples of our Holy Mother and Holy Father come to mind in this regard. Did they not rather remain silent and take refuge in prayer and contemplation when faced with trials and persecutions? This is, in fact, one of the reasons why I chose to tell the story of the Carmelite martyrs of Compagnon, because in the face of true persecution, they spoke no words but took refuge in contemplation. They held fast to their identity and put their faith in God and no one else. If this was how they responded when their very lives were at stake, how much more should we respond likewise when we, faced, when we are faced with trials which pale in comparison? St. John of the Cross has written what he calls precautions against the world, the devil, and the flesh that are quite germane to our goal of maintaining our identity as active contemplatives. Let me present a few of them for your consideration. Precautions against the world. 1. 
Do not think about others, neither good things nor bad. Flee this in as much as possible. If you do not observe this practice, you will not know how to be a religious, nor will you be able to reach holy recollection or deliver yourself from imperfections. If you should wish to allow yourself some freedom in this matter, the devil will deceive you in one way or another, or you will deceive yourself under some guise of good or evil. 2. Guard against thinking about what happens in community, and even more against speaking of it, of anything in the past or present concerning a particular religious. Nothing about his or her character or conduct or deeds, no matter how serious any of this seems. Do not say anything under the color of zeal or of correcting a wrong, unless at the proper time to whom ever by right you ought to tell. Never be scandalized or astonished at anything you happen to see or learn of, endeavoring to preserve your soul in forgetfulness of all that. Should you desire to pay heed to such things, many will seem wrong, even if you were to live among angels, because of your not understanding the substance of them. Recall what St. James the Apostle asserted, If anyone thinks he is religious, not restraining the tongue, that one's religion is vain. This applies as much to the interior as to the exterior tongue. Precautions against the devil. Seek with all your heart to humble yourself in word and in deed, rejoicing in the good of others as if it were your own, desiring that they be given precedence over you in all things, and this you should do wholeheartedly. Try to practice this more with those who least attract you. Realize that if you do not train yourself in this way, you will not obtain real charity or make any progress in it. Precautions against the flesh You have come to Carmel so that all may fashion you and try you. Thus, to free yourself from the imperfections and disturbances that can be engendered by the mannerisms and attitudes of the religious and draw profit from every occurrence, you should think that all in the community are artisans, as indeed they are, present there in order to prove you. Some will fashion you with words, others by deeds, and others with thoughts against you, and that in all this you must be submissive, as is the statue to the craftsman who molds it, to the artist who paints it, and to the gilder who embellishes it. If you fail to observe this precaution, you will not know how to overcome your sensuality and feelings, nor will you get along well in the community with the religious or attain holy peace or free yourself from many stumbling blocks and evils. If I had to summarize all that I've said today about maintaining our identity as secular Carmelites, as active contemplatives, it would be that our surest refuge is in silence. Robert Cardinal Seurat, the Prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, explains, quote, If we observe the great works, 
the most powerful acts, the most extraordinary and striking interior transformations that God carries out in man, we are forced to admit that he works in silence. Baptism brings about a marvelous creation in the soul of the infant or the adult who receives this sacrament. We heard the words of the priest. We saw the water flow on the infant's forehead. Yet we perceive nothing of this immersion into the inner life of the Trinity, grace, and creation, which requires nothing less than the personal almighty action of God. God has uttered his word in the soul in silence. In that same silent darkness, the subsequent developments of grace generally come. Unquote. Do you see what follows from the Cardinal's observations? God speaks, but the language he speaks is silence, and it is silently in our room where we can commune with him. Therefore, there is no safer place than silence from which we can protect our identity, live out our vocation, and fulfill our mission as secular Carmelites. In silence, our beloved waits and longs for us to join him. Let us go to him.